Welcome to the Tom Dupree Show. Joining us on the phone, Adarsh Meshru, Mike Johnson. In the studio, our host, Tom Dupree. And we are powered by Dupree Financial Group. So this is two-fourths of blind faith. Uh, Steve Winwood, Eric Clapton. Uh, it was a concert they did, I don't know, 10-plus years ago. And uh, in this one, Steve Winwood is actually playing the guitar, which I didn't even know he could play the guitar. But uh, this was, of course, their super group that had the other two force were Ginger Baker on the drums and Jack Bruce on the bass. And uh, it was called Blind Faith, which... I think was the predecessor to Cream, pretty sure. Or it might have been after Cream. I don't know. All runs together. But uh, interesting, you know, they, they've kind of mellowed it out a little bit over the years. But Steve Winwood still has that unmistakable, you know, vocal that is nobody's ever going to be like him. All right, we've had, got... Mike and Adarsh here. So there's an article in Barron's, looks like uh, a couple days ago. Um, the debt is over $30 trillion. Who's on the other side of the liabilities? In other words, who owns our debt? Well, it used to be the idea that it, it was all owned by China. And, and the thing that you have to understand about the u.s debt it's a it's another way of earn of owning currency in a sense it just has a future cash date there is nothing collateralized about the u.s debt it is purely what's termed in the finance business as a debenture which means it's almost like a signature loan it's it's a loan that's based on the ability to pay of the borrower. It has no, has no mortgage on anything. So <laughs> it's, it's just a place to put cash, and it is, in a sense, cash. And treasury bills, which are the short end of the debt, are almost cash anyway. But this article goes into... Um, you know, a list and, and some ideas about who actually owns the debt. Well, number one, that's going to be anybody that gets paid in dollars. So, Mike, go ahead and, or you and Adars, yeah. take it over. So, uh, the gross federal debt, um, I'll, I'll round the numbers here, uh, say $31 trillion. Uh, Let's break down the really four holders of that. Um, the intra-government uh, holdings is about $5.6 trillion. So that would so that be would the be, uh, Social Security Trust, uh, Medicare, any anything that takes an IOU from the Treasury. Exactly. Yeah, so they're, they're included the in the Federal Reserve, yeah. So that includes, um, so that $5 trillion includes what the Fed owns in that does not include mortgage backs, correct? Yes, that's right. It, it includes what the Fed owns, but it's just treasuries, no mortgage backs. 
Yeah, just straight treasuries. All right. Yep. And so net federal debt, after you exclude that, say $25 trillion. Then breaking that down, state and local governments, uh, $1.4 trillion, which is 4.7%. Uh, the private sector is $16 trillion, which is 52%. So when you, wait, wait a minute. Four, when, when you say yep. the private sector, does that – mean domestic only or all over the domestic only so wow so we in other words businesses and individuals in the u.s and i I guess endowments and nonprofits own basically over half of our debt exactly 52 percent all right and and then foreign whole all foreign holdings uh, right at 25%, seven and three quarter trillion. Now, when you're so talking about. So let me about, ask you a you question. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. When they say foreign, does that include Boyd County? No, I'm just kidding you. Uh, <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> It, it 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 does include uh uh you know uh, sec- second tier nations and yeah. yes like 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 Boyd County yeah okay. <laughs> no, no I, actually I, I'd love green up in there yeah okay so <laughs> so so really what we're talking about is it's kind of a myth to say that you know China owns all our debt that's that's just not true that, that's right. And if you break it specifically yeah, so. on China, uh, China holds 0.9 trillion of federal debt, and that that works out to about three and a half percent of total GDP. Adarsh, you were going to say something. Yeah, I was actually going to uh, throw out the China figure there, uh, which is you know when you compare it to the overall debt, 0.9 trillion, so it's it's relatively small. I think it used to be higher at one point. It used to be over a trillion, uh, but it's uh, it's been reducing. Um, but um, to put the whole thing in perspective, the U.S. economy is twenty five point seven trillion as of the last uh, uh, you know reading. And um, for the first time since World War Two, U.S. debt uh, is exceeding a hundred percent of GDP. So you know at a little over 30 trillion is close to 120% of GDP and it got that high during World War II. So the trajectory has been upward. Uh, what happened post World War II was, you know, a big boom in the economy. So just the size of the economy grew rapidly and that brought down the, the relative percentage of the debt versus the GDP. And this time around, you know, I mean, it remains to be seen. Either the debt has to come down, or uh, GDP has to grow rapidly. You know, to uh, uh, to I, I guess bring the debt to GDP number back to historical averages, which are much lower. One of the things that people need to realize, and this is going to sound a little odd, but in, in in an inflationary age, and if you have a a, a government that can print money issuing bonds in a sense debt really isn't debt i mean it yes it it it's called debt and yes there would be a problem if they didn't roll over their treasury bills and their their bonds but this is an entirely different kind of debt 
than uh, you and me going out and borrowing money at a bank on a on a mortgage or a car or some kind of thing because they basically hold uh, all the uh, uh, levers of power of uh, you know the ability to print money and uh, issue debt and then uh, roll over their debt. Right. It, it, on the the China holdings, so you think of okay, so they own point nine trillion. Um, with the vast market and demand uh, for treasuries, um, you know the I've seen it you know a number of times where well, if China liquidates all their holdings, then what's going to happen to the the debt? Well, there's there's a there's a plenty of demand out there that size could get soaked up i would think pretty easily um and so they don't want to have you know repercussions on their currency uh and you know the the pricing on that probably wouldn't be affected that much even if they went and sold the entire their entire holding of u.s treasuries well i would be interested in go ahead yeah, I, I was just going to, uh, you know, go a little bit into the technicality of how countries end up uh, owning U.S. debt. So part of the reason why China owns a lot of U.S. debt is because China is also the U.S. biggest trade partner. So when trade occurs, you know, China receives U.S. dollars because a lot of uh, goods and commodities are traded in dollars. And uh, China just takes those dollars and parks them in U.S. treasuries. So uh, the increase or decrease in foreign holdings of treasuries can fluctuate uh, with what uh, uh, the amount of trade the countries do. So uh, it wouldn't be in China's interest really to liquidate their holdings uh, if they are still trading in U.S. dollars or buying commodities in U.S. dollars. Okay, you just said something that's very important there. So China is going to do a lot of trade in U.S. dollars which means that they will always have a dollar position of some sort. Right. They cannot repatriate the uh, dollars back into yuan or uh, rim, rim the, the local currency um, that quickly, you know, they're they're So they are always, you know, going to have a dollar position so to dump those treasuries and just cause the market to trade off is simply uh, disingenuous for their position. The same could be said right. of, the, of the Saudis, who it doesn't matter who they're selling their oil to, it all um, settles in U.S. dollars around the globe. It, that that is correct, right, Adarsh? Yeah, yes, that's right. That's right. So there could be some trade that happens in euro and a few other currencies, but primarily U.S. dollars. Yeah. So the the benchmark for trading oil is the U.S. dollar. Even Brent, which is never yeah. comes to the U.S., it still gets traded in dollars um, overseas. So the Saudis are always going to have a large dollar position. And therefore, they're going to own some treasuries. Uh, another uh, big holder, you know, are insurance companies, uh, stateside insurance companies that uh, 
many of whom uh, have lots of float, and the treasury market dwarfs, you know, the commercial paper market. In other words, short there's there's lots more short term treasury bonds available to be bought and sold than there are, uh, say, commercial paper and other kinds of of um, short-term bonds issued by corporations. One of the reasons for that is because some of the biggest corporations that exist out there, you know, are tech companies, and tech companies are not that capital-intensive. They don't require, you know, constant borrowing like, say, I don't know, a car company or some of these other kinds of companies. So they're cash rich. Who's the biggest borrower out there? It's the Treasury. It's the U.S. government. So therefore, a lot of cash reserves that are with the big corporations are going to end up back in Treasuries rather than commercial paper. That's right. So what is the point of what we're talking about, Mike? <laughs> well, it's headlines. You know, there's always this this fear mongering. The you know the headlines that are out there. This is one example. This is something that's you know being talked about right now with you know debt ceiling and all that. Um, and it, this is one example. There's thousands of these things every day. You know, be it on an individual stock, on the stock market, on the economy, all this. And there's, so it's it's if, you know for our listeners, it's kind of clickbait. You know. Um, and dig down, do your research. Actually, you know, the, the, the second part of this discussion, you know, would be, okay, now that we know who owns the treasuries, what could be, you know, each of the motivations for, for the holders and what could be some of the repercussions if an event happened, but you can't even have that discussion if you don't know who even holds the treasuries. It's just like with, you know, the stock market, you, know, you, you can't have a discussion on, you know, a particular sector, a particular company, uh, if you don't know anything about that sector or that company. And so it, it never take for granted what you read on a headline, uh, actually do some digging, understand, and there's, there's some meat underneath it. And you have to know what that is before you just jump to a conclusion. In other words, it's unlikely that if 52% of our debt we owe to ourselves, you know, it's unlikely that we will declare a moratorium on buying our own treasuries and, you know, try to make the market roll over because 52% of the holders are stateside. But again, I go back. Exactly. I go, yes, I, 75% in fact. If you include the, uh, if you include the uh, uh, government entities. Intergovernmentally, yeah. So the thing I want, I want to go back to that statement that I made is that it isn't the same kind of debt that you and I would incur or a corporation. Let's say a corporation goes out to build a building and they tap the capital markets for, you know, $200 million dollars to build a building and they go out and borrow money either in the corporate bond market or perhaps 
they do a, a bank syndicate, a bank loan, or maybe they borrowed from an insurance company. Could be a, you know, or even mutual funds, one of these debt funds. The fact is that is a that is a kind of debt that's going to be, if not directly collateralized by either real estate or some sort of hard asset, it will have a pledge of revenues. That's the way the banking system functions. They want to make sure that if they don't have uh, a direct claim on a piece of real estate or assets that can be sold like airplanes, um, that at least they have a pledge of the, of revenues that they're, they've got dedicated revenues towards paying that off. Treasury bonds are not like that. What really backs treasury bonds is the acceptance of the U S dollar, the, uh, robustness of the U S economy, uh, knowing that, uh, revenues will be available to the treasury but i think more than that in recent years it's more the widespread acceptance of the u.s dollar as a uh, reserve currency and the ability of the treasury to always roll over its debt because a lot of this interest payment is is coming not from tax uh revenues but from going back and borrowing more to pay the debt. So it's a, it's kind of a game of uh, musical chairs. It's all built on uh, the belief that, you know, the currency system being what it is, that the dollar is still accepted. The, the government is doing everything they can in terms of inflationary uh, behavior to try to undermine the market, but nonetheless, it's still the best one that we've got in the world. And that's the big reason why, in my opinion, it keeps going on. Yeah. I thought this, this statistic uh, to, to that point, I thought this, this number was mind boggling. So the total consolidated private and public sector asset holdings of the U S So this includes the market value of all real property, corporations, and even foreign assets held by the U.S. um, was $171 trillion um, as of uh, September 22, $171 trillion. And so if you measure that foreign debt holding against that number, that's only about 4.5%. Right, but if you had to put all that on the market at the same time, you wouldn't get $171 trillion for it. <laughs> All right. We've got to go to a break. You're listening to the Tom Dupree Show with the Darsh Mashru and Mike Johnson. We'll be back in just a few minutes with more of the Tom Dupree Show. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to the Tom Dupree Show. Joining us, Adarsh Meshru, Mike Johnson, our host, Tom Dupree. And we are powered by Dupree Financial Group. So this was the song, I think it came out in 1966, that uh, put Stevie Winwood, uh, you know, on the map. Uh, he was with a group called the Spencer Davis Group. They they came from Birmingham, England, but in the north, you know, the industrial north. And he he had a brother in there, and I can't think of his name. But it, so he had, it was him and his brother, and I think he was about seventeen when this song was made. But all of a sudden, you hear that voice that's unmistakable. And I just remembered they played it on all the top 40 stations in the U.S. All I think about are the Blues Brothers. Yeah. And John Belushi. Well, that's... that. Yeah, it did get reprised by them. That is not what I think about. When Dan Aykroyd. Hear that song. Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. I had this guy tell me one time, he said, you look just like Dan Aykroyd. Can't say sounds that like, I see that. <laughs> sounds nope. like a hemorrhoid. But oh uh, lord, okay. Anyway, hickey on a hemorrhoid. <laughs> uh, all right, we got another article. So there, there's, there's a very ugly uh, business out there that, of course, sometimes seems like it was founded in Kentucky. Probably founded in Virginia more, but uh, moved to Kentucky in the you know, 175 years ago, the, the tobacco business, you know, for years, uh, tobacco has been considered a very politically unpopular, unhealthy, uh, place uh, in which to invest the tobacco, bad tobacco, bad, bad, bad tobacco, bad tobacco. And, um, you know, so what's happened is of course the industry was, was sued uh, for a, a, a ton of lawsuits in a number of years ago. I can't remember how long it's been. Seems like it's been over 20 years ago. They did a, a kind of a master settlement with all the plaintiffs. And um, and in, in that, they did a buyout uh, of people who grew tobacco and had relied of small farmers who had relied upon that tobacco income every year. They, a lot of them got a lump sum check and that there were no longer going to be any price supports for tobacco. Now the tobacco market has come back. And for those who want to grow tobacco, um, you really don't have any limit on how much of it you can grow and there's, but there's no price support for it either. So, um, it's a it's a more entrepreneurial market, uh, and let's just say it's become deregulated. And in that process, uh, along with the lawsuits, the unpopularity, the high level of taxation on tobacco products, uh, you have had a decline in actual people in the market. I mean, you don't hear somebody. Um, some kid in business school uh, who's trying to get an MBA or something say, I'm going into the tobacco industry. I'm going to start a new, to- a new tobacco company. It's not considered a hot area. So what's happened with the companies that are still in the business? Well, 
they have less competition and they've become more profitable. So we look at some of these things and at Dupree Financial Group, we actually have some holdings or at least one holding in the tobacco area. Uh, and we, I'm not going to mention, I sort of, I was told don't mention the name of the company you're in cause somebody might go out and buy it, but I'll just say that we do have exposure there. That's why we do our disclaimer that nothing's a recommendation. Guess by what? I still, people can come after you for anything. I'm not going to tell you the name of the company. You got to come in and have an appointment with us. So we're going to stop doing that part of it. But the point is the economics of the business being what they are. So now you have this new part of the business that is growing like crazy, which the industry calls non-combustible. What does that mean? Well, what it really means is vaping. It means something that has tobacco-esque uh, characteristics but that you don't light a match to it and that you suck on it and get vapor and you get the, the hit that you would get off a cigarette. And now you get the hit that you would get off a joint because if you've been to any of these uh, uh, gas stations and they're selling this stuff called Delta 8, Delta 9, Delta 10, Honey, that's THC. That's that's marijuana, basically. It's the same chemical. So that all being the case, um, you know, now there are elements of the business that it just. I'm not saying anybody ought to go out and smoke. I'm I'm not I'm not a smoker. Uh, I'll have the occasional cigar, but uh, aside from that, and of course, I don't inhale, just like Bill Clinton. Um, I, I'm not what you would call a habitual tobacco user. I don't recommend anybody become one. I don't think it's necessarily healthy, but given the things that exist, you know, it might be better than some other things that people do. Um, it is a business and it has interesting economic, uh, characteristics that can and might be favorable to the investor. Also, from a valuation perspective, meaning that the, a lot of these shares are not overinflated in price. So that's kind of the scenario. Right. And if you look at the, the profitability, you, know, you look at a, a gross profit margin on, on this particular company, you know, you're looking at 83%, uh, operating margin of 54%. Um, and so it's it's all about cash. All right. Flow so wait a minute. You just you just quoted yeah. a couple of percentages. You said eighty three percent. Eighty three percent of what? That's the gross profit margin. So in other words, uh, their uh, their cost is you know ten dollars, and they're selling it for eighteen dollars and thirty cents. Right. That's their gross profit margin, and then their net they're keeping $5.40, you know, kind of after expenses um, on their uh, on their profit. Right. And that's, that's awesome. So that's a pretty big deal. It's phenomenal. Um, and when you're looking at 
companies like this, you're, you're looking for predictable cash flow. You know, I was uh, wrong and, on that. That, that, that number, I did it wrong. If they sell $10 worth of product, they only have a cost of like a dollar 70 in it. And, and then they keep, uh, yeah, that that's an 83%. Well, the 83% of sales is flowing. It's a bigger profit margin than what I just said. So when you're looking at cash flow from these companies, because the valuation looks attractive. You mentioned that. So when you're buying a, a, a company, you look at what you're paying for it. So is it priced reasonably or cheap? In this case, you know, the, the valuation looks attractive. It has a good dividend yield. Um, and so essentially you're getting paid while you wait, hopefully for the price to go up. Um, they have other areas. You talked about the, the, the non-combustibles. Um, that's the growth part of the business for them. Um, so if it's a relatively stable cash flow, good margins, if they manage their debt, I mean, the, the, these companies have been around for over a hundred years. This one in particular has, um, and management knows what they're doing. Um, and they've lived in this environment for the last 25 years of, you know, uh, the, the anti-smoking uh, campaign, tobacco campaign, if you will. And they've been able to manage through that. Um, and now they're seeing other areas of growth. And so it, it, it fits into a portfolio. This is one piece. Remember, we're talking one piece of a portfolio. Um, when you're looking for consistent dividends, hopefully a growing dividend, um, it's, it's just the sector that fits perfectly with that. Well, it's, you know, insurance companies have a name for a line of business that they're trying to do away with. And they, they say that it's in runoff. That's the term they use. It's in runoff, which means in a few years, it will cease to exist. In a sense, the tobacco industry has been in runoff for, you know, 30 to 40 years. Um, it's been a business that many have thought would go away and no longer exist. And it just keeps on going. It, it, ha it, it, it's actually gotten in many ways more profitable than it ever was. And one of the reasons is because there's less competition. That's right. Right. Go ahead. Adar. Yeah. In fact, uh, you know, the, the business was, I haven't looked at the latest statistics, but a few years ago, it was still growing because the uh, usage of um, tobacco products outside the U.S. in the developing markets was going up as, uh, you know, countries got wealthier and people switched from more traditional tobacco products to cigarettes and now, you know, vaping and so forth. Yeah, the vaping, and I'm going to say this, it may be controversial, but to me, in a lot of these small towns, um, it seems to me that the vaping is synonymous now with uh, drug use. Um, and it's, uh, I'm not saying it's healthy, but a lot of people put a lot of money into uh, marijuana stocks, especially, you know, three to four years ago that 
began to be a big deal. And then it appears that there, they didn't create as many dope smokers as they thought they were going to. <laughs> you know, a lot of these uh, uh, marijuana stocks are down 80 to 90 percent. Some of them are, and uh, they they call them cannabis stocks. But um, it sort of seems to have morphed over to the tobacco companies, and now you see uh, the vaping uh, being a much bigger deal. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's important to keep the context of why we're talking about you know this particular sector, or why we're talking about treasuries. What's the whole point of this? Our clients, us, I mean, people are living longer now. Um, you know, the very, very possible and likely that, you know, people are going to be living into their 90s, um, uh, late 80s, 90s, upper 90s. Um, and when you're dealing with the retirement portfolio, uh, what's the hard part? You don't want to run out of money. That's that's. Pure and simple, that's what we're trying to address here. And when you're looking at companies uh, that have good cash flow, good management, what's the best way to keep up with uh, an inflation over time? It's owning companies that have pricing power, basically. Um, And then you throw in the idea of dividends, income production, so that if you're a retiree and drawing from this, if you retire at 65, you could be drawn on this for 30 years. That's uh, right. It's very easy. Um, and so during that 30 years, inevitably, you're going to have a good market. You're going to have bad markets. Um, but while all that's going on, you're needing income from it. Um, and at the same time, you have inflation that's nipping at your heels. You've got to keep up with inflation. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of headwinds going against you. Um, and so how do you best address that problem, um, while you're retired? And then if you're leaving it for future generations, um, and it's, I I, I read something yesterday. I I loved the quote. A lot of people think to retirement, not through retirement. That's exactly right. Um, That's exactly, that's that's, why there's all these target funds. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I loved that quote because people think, you know, my retirement date, that's when, you know, that's when the investing stops, so to speak. That's when I need to be, quote unquote, safe, have a lot of bonds and cash, yada, yada, yada. Um, but that's that's short term thinking. Um, you, you've got to invest long term because of those issues I just stated. Yeah, it's absolutely true. In a sense, um, your retirement is when the investing really starts, the skill part of the investing, because um, what you've typically been doing, if you've been in a, a 401k or 403b or some sort of retirement plan, you're just throwing money at it um, like a machine, typically every month. It's um, it, it doesn't require much brain power, and you've been relying on the market and the things that you're in to sort of take care of, you know, a lot of folks don't even look at their statements over a long period of time. Now you're at a point where, you know, somebody better understand investing in all its forms. That would be income growth and income or growth and know what fits where 
in order to make this portfolio uh, be both nimble and robust enough to carry you over a long period of time. The, I got I got news for you. You have gone from being in whatever business you were in, whether it be a doctor, lawyer, university professor, work at Toyota, um, could be have worked anywhere, accumulating money. You've gone from doing that as your profession. You're now in the investment business. You are now a small investment advisory firm. You're not licensed. You're not managing other people's money. You're managing your own money. You are your own, in a sense, investment advisor. Even if you farm it out to somebody else, you ultimately have to be the person that uh, you know says we got to do this or not. You can't dodge this. Now, there are ways to get some help with this. And this is where we come in. This is where you could uh, give us a call, 859-233-0400 or DupreeFinancial.com. Look on our website. Because I don't think most, uh, in fact, I know this for a fact, over 90% of the people we talk to have no idea, and they haven't even thought about how they are going to invest their retirement portfolio to produce income and not run out of money. Absolutely. Well, and taking it a step further, even it's, it's all the intricacies that go into retirement. So it's, you know, you have the social security, you know, uh, aspect, should you take it at 62 versus 70? Um, you know, you have the, you know, uh, if you want to call it a state planning, you have all these different factors that go into it. You know, the withdrawal rate in conjunction with what the portfolio is generating, how is it invested? All these things fit together. Uh, they, they, they rely on each other. And so that's the, the big picture part of it. You know, our job is to maximize our clients' assets. Uh, that can be the, the retirement dollars. That can be time uh, that can be you know your age i mean all these different things all of that goes into the retirement planning and the investing that's all of a, a piece of it that's exactly right so give us a call um you know this is something that we do it does not cost you anything to come see us nothing you can come see us you need to, if you're going to get something out of coming to see us and it's going to be a good use of your time, which you don't have to spend money on, you need to bring us statements, things that would show where your money's invested, how it's invested, how it's done over time, what you're going to need in terms of your income, uh, other sources of income, because our job is not to just collect a fee on your assets. Our job is to make you successful in your retirement. So you'll have enough money to do the things you want to do over time. And it's got to be inflation adjusted and tax adjusted. So we are here to guide you to and through retirement. We actively manage our portfolios. They're not on autopilot. 
There's never been a more important time to have your eye on the ball. So, retirement is our game. We're here to help. Call us, 859-233-0400. We'd love to put another set of eyes on your portfolio. We appreciate you listening to this hour. We'll be back in just a few minutes with the next one. Stay tuned.